At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Best in Show, the podcast dedicated to the rabbit and cavey fancy. My name is Alan Messick, and I'm joined each and every time by the beautiful and talented Bryony Smith from Kansas. Bryony, how are you? Doing well. How about you? I'm good. Tonight, uh, I'm sitting on a uh, deck in the East Bay of California, looking out into this gorgeous view. Uh, you know, we joked, we joke sometimes about, you know, when you're in rabbits or cavies that you have friends everywhere. If you break down, you can call them up and they'll be like five minutes away. There's always someone that's five minutes away from, from your need. And my, my need tonight was, um, I'm stuck in bad traffic in San Francisco. I just picked up an Italian Maremma from Italy and I have a podcast to do in an hour. What can I do? And I called up some rabbit friends that live in the Bay Area. And they're like, hey, come on over. We'll we'll make dinner and you can do your podcast. And that's exactly what's going on tonight. Rabbit friends are the best. The doors are always open. They certainly are. What's going on in your neck of the woods? Um, It's warming up a little. It's um, Spring is coming. I'm looking forward to spring break. Uh, normally one of my favorite times of the year. That's my birthday for one. And it starts the uh, NCAA tournament, which is always fun. You know, we'll we'll just kind of see how all this shakes out this year. I'm kind of missing some of the usual events, but, you know, things are getting better. So we just got to look at the bright side. I agree. And um, what do you have uh, in store for us tonight? I want to talk about what we're aiming for in terms of uh, the next like sequence of of guests over some time? Sure. Um, one of the things we wanted to do when we made this podcast was not only talk about things that are current to the industry, do some education, um, but we also wanted to talk to people, get some stories, and kind of capture some of the history of the organization. So one of the series we decided to start with, and one that, of course, influenced the name of the podcast, are the Best in Show winners from our ARBA National Conventions. Um, we, we kind of came to this name, you, you and I got together when we did uh, commentary for best in show at the Springfield 2018 convention. And so that kind of, you know, rolled into this project. So we thought that this would be a great name because it reflects that thing that we're all chasing. And, um, we thought it'd be a good idea to talk to people that have been there. Everyone's got a little bit different story, a little bit different take. Um, so tonight we're starting out with, um, one of our best in show winners. And these are not going to be sequential. Um, we're just going to tell a little bit different story every time. And we're going to talk to as many people as we can. That's so cool. And I think that, as you said, best in show for all of us that are, are raising rabbits and cavies or, you know, any type of livestock, that pinnacle, that pinnacle award 
is the best in show. And for us in Rabbits and KVs and the ARBA, it's best in show at the convention. There's no, there's no prize. There's no award. There's no honor bigger for a rabbit than to win best in show at convention. And, you know, one of my favorite memories, as you just brought up, was when you and I did the commentary at the 2018 ARBA convention in West Springfield, Massachusetts. And while it's a long event, uh, there's very little time after best in show to, you know, get to know the winner, hear the story about the rabbit or the KV that won. And we're fortunate enough to have these winners, you know, within our circle, like tonight, for example, our, our guest, and to hear their story and to hear what we otherwise couldn't hear on that day, there just wasn't enough time. You know, we're rushing off to banquets or other events. So uh, we hope that this podcast uh, finally gives these guys and girls their fair, uh, you know, time on stage to share their story and their remarkable pathway to the pinnacle award for rabbits and KVs in the ARBA. Yes. Um, and also right after the win, um, people's minds are a little blown. <laughs> you know, for us, this is our, our Olympic gold medal, our Academy Award. Um, it, it's the the highest award that we can achieve in our hobby and something that most people will only ever dream of. You've got it. And you're right. That, that that stage is an emotional stage. And for the winner, sometimes that it takes days to uh, to finally collect their thoughts. I'm like, oh wow, I just I just did this. So uh, maybe years later for some of these guests, but there's no doubt that that memory in their mind is as fresh and poignant as the day it happened. Yes, absolutely. So should we roll into our this time in before we go on to our guest? Let's go. What have you got for right. us? So we are going to use 2013 as our year this episode to talk about, uh, you know, what was going on in the world and also what was going on in Rabbits and KVs. And we picked this uh, year because, in fact, our guest tonight won Best in Show at the 2013 ARBA convention, and that was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. But in the world, before we go on to the Rabbit and KV portion, some uh, big events of that year. Uh, first of all, big changes at the Vatican on February 11, 2013. 85-year-old Pope Benedict XVI shocked the world and 1.2 billion Catholics when he announced he was resigning for health reasons. Do you remember that? I do. It was the first time a Pope had resigned in over 700 years. Yeah, big, big event. Um, second on my list for events from 2013 also has to do with Europe. Um, England's royal baby arrived and all eyes were on the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, or as we know them, Prince William and Kate Middleton. Uh, and it was in the summer that year when their baby, Prince George Alexander Lewis, arrived on July 22nd. Um, and the last, we tend to do this uh, every episode, talk about some of the pop culture. In 2013, according to TV Guide, any guesses, Bryony, on those top three TV shows? Um, I'm going to say it was probably reality shows. One was sort of a reality show. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually surprised too. Yeah, now thinking back on that that period in our time when reality show was like the thing to watch. But in 2013, according to TV Guide, the top three TV shows: number one, The Big Bang Theory; second, NCIS; and third, this kind of fringes on that reality. It was actually Sunday Night Football on NBC. Huh. Okay. Interesting, right? Yeah. All right. So, what was going on on the ARBA side? Well, um, like you said, we had the convention in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, this was the first one we had in Pennsylvania for quite some time. Um, I'll give you a little uh, rundown of the results here. Um, on the standards committee side, this was a huge year for accepting new breeds and varieties. Um, the Chinchilla Dutch became a new variety. Um, 
mini satins, blues, the tort group, and the silver martin group became new varieties. And the big news, this was many years coming, was lion heads were accepted for a third presentation, and both the tortoise and ruby-eyed white varieties became part of that new breed. A lot of people have worked for many years on this breed. Um, they were one of the most popular breeds in exhibition for years and years and years, went through a few presenters to be successful. And a lot of people were were very, very excited about that. I remember the cheers all through the showroom. It was a huge day. I remember standing there, trying to stand there and congratulate Teresa Mueller, the COD, you know, the developer of the, or the holder of the COD at the time and her partner, Cheryl Raffith. And it was impossible to get near them because they were surrounded by so many fans and so many lovers of the breed that finally uh, saw the breed uh, accepted into our standard. It was, it was a big moment and one I'll never forget. Oh, it was. Um, they really carried so many people's hopes and dreams on their backs that day. I can't imagine the pressure, but they were successful. And now they're a popular breed with a great following. They certainly are. And more varieties. And more varieties and maybe more on the way. We've got several CODs out. Absolutely. Good luck to everyone that's uh, working on those. In the November-December Domestic Rabbits, we had the convention report. We also had a couple of new judges licensed during that time. Dan Daniels from Kansas and Corey Hayes from New York got their judges license. Um, on the youth side, Group 1 was won by a Florida White, owned by Andrew Hicks. Group 2, a Britannia Petite, owned by Nellie Brown. Group 3, a Dutch, by McAllister Bingston. And Group 4, a Champagne D'Argent, owned by Ann Mills. Best in Show went to that Dutch. Um, it was actually the first of two years in a row that Youth Best in Show was won by a Dutch, and this was a steal. On the open side, Group 1 was won by a Florida White, owned by Doug Hara. Group 2, a Havana, owned by Julie Spear. Group 3, English Angora by Betty Chu. And Group 4, a Jersey Woolly by Amber Henderson. Um, Doug's Florida White won Best in Show today. So if you're listening, that's who we have here to talk to us. And so exciting. And insight. Yes. And I remember, I'm not going to, Doug, I'm not meaning to take away from your win at all, but from, as a, from a Californian side, do you know the story behind the other three group winners, Bryony? I don't. This is, this is remarkable. And like Dutch winning two years in a row, it's, it's, it's about that kind of rare, unique situation. So Amber Henderson won a group with the Jersey Woolly. Betty Chu wins a group with the English Angora. And Julie Spear wins a group with the Havana. Of course, Doug had the Florida White. Those three ladies all live in California within about 30 miles of each other in the Santa Clara Valley. That's crazy. Isn't that nuts? Those three ladies all, and if we were all joking after, all right, what's in the water in Santa Clara <laughs> Valley? Because we clearly all need to be using that water to, uh, to bring our rabbits to the top like that. It was, it was a very historic time for the, for, for that area and that, uh, and uh, for those, for those ladies and for us Californians. Yes. Well, Californians have done well on stages across the country at conventions throughout the year. Yeah, very proud of all, all of our people out here. So we're ready to introduce our guest to you tonight. Um, Doug Hara is with us. Doug became an ARBA member in 1966 and entered his first convention in 1973. He won his first best of breed in 1975 with a checkered giant. Doug currently raises, as we know, Florida Whites. He serves as the president of the Florida White Rabbit Breeders Association. He served as a show superintendent at the conventions in Indianapolis and is doing so again at the upcoming convention in Louisville, Kentucky this year. He's earned the President's Award of Excellence and has been the Florida White Person of the Year. 
And Doug says of all of his achievements, he's most proud to be the father of one of ARBA's judges, Ryan Hara. Doug, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So to get started, can you tell us a little bit about how you began with the Rabbit Project? Uh, this, this began in the early 60s for me. Back then, people raised rabbits for meat. Uh, I think that most of the parents back then had them, went through the depression and they planted gardens in the city and they raised rabbits on the side. And that's how I started. Um, I started showing in 1965 with some of my meat rabbits and they were New Zealand reds. And uh, I beat the adults as a young child and um, I got hooked real quick. So uh, it's been a long, long venture. I bet you did. So there were there youth shows when you began or was it all open? There was four eight shows and there was youth shows, but it wasn't what it is today. Uh, I showed youth one time. There was no competition. I didn't ever did it again. I always showed against open exhibitors. For me, I think it made me a better breeder. Uh, you got beat a lot as a kid, but, but there was a time I started winning and beating the adults. And uh, there's a lot of pride in that as a kid. So. But they, the youth expanded so well right now and so many projects that the ARB is doing fantastic. So my hat's off for the, for the people who do it now for them. And how did the adults react when you won? Oh, they hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, given how, how much encouragement so many adults give to youth breeders now. I was not expecting it that. <laughs> it was embarrassing for them. Yeah. But I had a lot of great mentors back then. So a lot of those people were the, the, the icons back then in that day. So I was very privileged to have that kind of people help me. So let's try to expand it now. That's why I do the ARBA conventions and everything else I do now. So it's just time to pay back a little bit. Well, and I know that you're one of the people, you know, people my age, we always talk about how incredibly encouraging you are to us. And, you know, we're kind of like the middle generation. We're not kids anymore, um, but we're also not the older people in the hobby. Um, and I know that means a lot to us to have someone saying, hey, good job. You know, you're doing great. Because um, we don't always get that. <laughs> we feel a little bit of pressure from both sides, I think. Um, so who are some of the mentors that you learned from when you were young? Uh, these are these are past Best in Show winners, like Bagdin Zahn. It was B&Z. They won three Best in Shows in a span of seven years with their New Zealand Whites. Uh, they were great mentors of mine. In fact, in college, I moved to their town, not only to be in college in their city, but also to, to learn from them. And uh, that was very rewarding for me. So um, Glenn Carr is another one. It's a long time mentor for me. And it's amazing as a child that you get to grow up and these people turn out to be known as your mentors, but they also be your best friends. So that's what this hobby brings to you is that it brings long-term relationships. There are some are more important to your family than you are because you have so much passion and, and desire to do what we do that um, we just mend together real well. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so you touched on this a little bit, and actually, this is why we asked you to be our first interview subject for the Best in Show series, because you've kind of become a historian on Best in Shows, both at regular shows and at convention. So can you tell us a little bit about the Best in Show award? I know that it didn't exist for a while, and it didn't exist at convention until the 70s. Um, why was that, and, and how did this start? Well, it didn't start until 1971, and that was in New Mexico. Albuquerque. 
I think it was probably, um, I almost say the 40, 48th convention before it happened because it's 50 a couple years later. But there were only like 2,500 entries in that show. And, and they didn't have designated judges like they have now. They had a group of judges that went together and walked around cages. And there's only 32 breeds. And they picked the best of the best being cage judging. So they'd bring a few rabbits up on the table that they thought were worthy enough to, to look at. And that's how they became to get that. And back then we had fancies and in, in, uh, commercial rabbits. We didn't have four class rabbits and six class rabbits. That changed later on. Um, so mostly back then it was dominant in six class rabbits, uh, which were commercial rabbits. Fancies were not as popular, but a, a, a fancy rabbit, a silver martin, won the first one. And the funny story about it was that Ellsworth Tibbetts was not even in the showroom when this happened. He was in a meeting across the street at a Silver Martin meeting. <laughs> and someone came in and told him he won Best in Show. Ellsworth didn't believe him, and he had to go to the show secretary to see if it was for sure true. And it was. So it was not a big deal to back then than it is today. Um, Glenn Carr and Richard Gere in 1996 decided that there needed to be more than just two rabbits. It'd be more interesting if there was more rabbits up on the show table for best best of breed or best in show. They end up doing the four class and the six class rabbits and decided to do groups. So in 1996 in Peoria Convention is the first time we had groups of four. Before then it was always fancy and, and uh, fancy and commercial rabbits and they would pick for best of breed. So there was a period of time 15 years or so where they didn't have what we have today. I can't answer when we first started picking judges through um, groups as far as our entries and fighters who voted the most. That's come very popular now. So but back in the, the 70s and stuff, it was just calling the PA system to bring your best of breed six class rabbits and your four class rabbits up. And it wasn't like it is today where there's a big stage and um, monitors and audience. It wasn't it was just a few people around, around the the um the tables. So um and some rabbits didn't even make it up to the table because they didn't hear the PA system. They were they didn't know anything about it like they do today. So it's a big production now and I think it'll get bigger. So um about when did this start to change? I seem to remember when I was a kid, so my first couple of conventions, it was just, you know, rabbits were brought up to a big judging table. And yeah, a lot of people stood around. Um do you remember when they started becoming more of a production? That's a good question, Barney. I don't know Zach when that happened. I know I knew the, the Fibber Cup came available in 01. That was Kevin Whaley and Randy Shoemaker come with that idea. And, and that's that's where that pinnacle trophy's come from now. So so I don't know if it was in 01 or what. Well, now there are a lot of names engraved on that. Um, so you touched on Silver Martins, which we know have won several best in shows, um, kind oh, of no. punched above their weight for the number of rabbits that are shown um it's not a hugely popular breed um what are some of the other breeds that are most competitive on the best in show table well new zealand's by far number one because they dominated the early half of the best in show ceremonies uh, they have 11 awards so why uh, whites have a le- uh, 10 and a black has one but the next one now after tex thomas won a springfield is five they're number two now by themselves uh three and four now is californians and satins so um, after 2017, it was 23-23, four class winning 23 and uh, six class winning 23. 
the last pre convention has been won by four class. So it's gone now dominant four class. It's now up to 26 to 23. So and that's just open. That's not counting new. So um, that's kind of where it's gone. There's, there's only 19 breeds that have won out of our 50 breeds that have won best in show. Wow. So why do you think that that shift has occurred? Uh, four breeds got a lot more popular because of the way society is today. People got away less from the commercial rabbitry than there used to be. Now it's more about spectacular than it used to be. So tell us about the breeds that you have raised. I know you started um, with New Zealand's and have showed checkered giants. Um, what else have you raised during your time with the rabbits? Believe it or not, of all the years I've done this, I've only raised three breeds. And that's New Zealand's and checkered giants and the Florida whites. I've played with the Dutch a few times, but those have been my three main breeds. And I've always just focused on those three breeds at a time. And for me, it's how you stay successful. I don't know how people like the uh, the young Walker kids up in Wisconsin, how they do so many well, so many different breeds. It's, just, it's amazing. Uh, but I learned old school. You just kind of focus on one breed and that's what you do. So what were, besides that, what were um, some of the first things that you were taught as a young rabbit breeder to help ensure success on the show table? Well, I think you got to be a visionary. I think you got to look outside the box a little bit. you got to know your standard and you got to learn to read as well as anything to, to know how to improve on it. And you got to be exposed to good stuff too. I don't know how people are not exposed to certain animals and can learn from just a book. It takes both, I think. So it takes a lot of mentoring. So I've been, like I said, I've been very fortunate through the years to have some of the best mentors there was. Uh, Fever McGee was a great, a great, not say not close mentor, but I mean, he would take you aside and he'd teach you. You know, I was always a good person to want to ask questions and learn and, and shut my mouth and just watch. So there's a lot to said to be that. I think that's been a kind of a common thread among successful people in the hobby is a desire to learn. Yeah. You can always improve. You always get better. So even those people who are successful want to get better. We're not satisfied just what we want in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Stagnating does not lead to more success. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about um, how you started the, the Florida White Herd that led to your big winner. It's amazing that I went through a lot of rabbits to get where I wanted to be. It's, it's kind of almost embarrassing how many rabbits I went through, but I knew what I was looking for, and it just you couldn't get it until you got it. I only had it for like six years before I won, so I finally figured it out through trial and error. And, and you, you get there, but you got to work at it. It's, it's a daily, daily project to, to learn and watch and call and find what the characteristics are that you need to, to improve. So I think. Most people who win big are visionaries, and they do see the big picture of what it takes. I mean, you're not only competing against your own breed, but you're competing, competing against all 50 breeds now. So you have to learn how what quality is and what judges are looking for on those tables, what impresses people. First impressions are everything. Yeah, that's right. I know that's something that I've learned is that, um, you know, there are, it's, I kind of compare it sometimes to like watching, you know, Olympic gymnastics or figure skating. There are people who are technically good and then there are people who knock your socks off. And that's not always the same thing. You know, there are rabbits that are, that are good. If you get your hands on them, if you work with them, you get them to pose. And then there are rabbits that demand attention. And that's, that's something to work on both of those things. Well, I, I totally agree. I mean, there's if you do this long enough, there's, there's animals that just make you step back and smile. And uh, that's what it takes. So it's kind of mm -hmm. called the wow factor. Yeah, absolutely. 
So um, what are some traits that you worked on um, that you think were kind of essential to your success with the Florida Whites? Well, I think it takes the whole package. I think it takes, you know, a rabbit that's muscle rabbit and it takes fur and it takes a loin and midsection. Everything has to blend together, you know, to make it balance out. Uh, Depth of body is is important. Uh, The things that judges look for, you know, it's just not only in breeders, but also the judges. They're the ones that pick them and you've got to please both. You've got to please yourself and you've got to please the the people who are going to look and examine them. So um, they're just qualities that um, every, every breed really should look at. So. And I, I picked the Florida Whites because I wanted to breed that I didn't have to worry about markings and collar because that was my goal was to win the best in show at ERBA. So the best way to do that was just to pick a white rabbit. So I didn't have to pick out collars and markings. So I didn't have to worry about those traits. So um, there's been a lot of white rabbits win best of shows. And talking between Californians and New Zealand Whites and Florida Whites, that, it's been pretty dominant. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, that's the things I was looking at. Yeah, it's it definitely takes a lot of things um, off of off of the plate. Um, I'm someone who likes marked rabbits, so it's an extra challenge. But I know you've raised checkered giants as well, and can appreciate that. Yeah, and I felt I came close a couple of times winning with it, but it with a marked rabbit, it, you can nitpick real quick visually. So um, sometimes you can be your worst enemy just because it is a marked rabbit. But I'm always impressed when I see marked rabbits win. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes um, in a marked rabbit, judges look for an absence of noticeable flaws versus like outstanding qualities, if that makes sense. I think it's totally agreeable. I really think that's what they do. I think it's a fault. But it's just being natural, though. It's just being normal what you do. Yeah. So um, you won, it was a junior doe that you won with, correct? Correct. So tell us a little bit about her background. What's amazing about her, she was four and a half months old when she won, mm-hmm. and she got better every day. When I left the house, she was not complete. She was probably about 85% ready to go. So day of the show, she was almost there, but she was better the next day at Besson Show, and she was better the next day after the show. And I know that because I showed her a few times to some people wanted to see her, but she kept getting finished her and finished her until she was and she had an amazing feel to her. Just you couldn't keep her hands off her. If that makes any sense. And she's probably the youngest rabbit who's ever won Best in Show. I can't. There's no records of that what age, but four and a half months old is not a very old rabbit for a show rabbit. No, it's not. Um, and especially the rabbits that do have a lot of muscling on them sometimes take a little bit longer, almost to senior age, to really fill that in. You're right. So she was exceptional, and she had her day. Did you have a good feeling about her when you entered her and loaded her up in the carrier? I didn't when I would load it in the carrier, but I did when I carried it to the table for a show table the first day. So it was a big class. I mean, there was probably 80 in the class, something like that. So it was a deep class. So um, taking her up to Best in Show, you said she looked the best she ever had. Um, what was it like watching your rabbit on the table when the group was being selected? Uh, it's nerve wracking. It's just that simple. It's just it's purely adrenaline going through your body, you know. Especially if you think you've got a shot. I think if you do this long enough, I think you know how if you've got a shot or not. And I felt like she had a shot. And then um, when the Florida White was announced as the best in show winner, what was that like? Well, probably the best feeling in your life. I got to top of the stage with, with Tex. Tex meeting me at top steps. And I was out of breath. And it wasn't because I was out of shape. I wasn't breathing. It just stopped breathing. So <laughs> it's that exciting. It, it's, you know, it's, you mentioned this in your 
dialogue in front, but you always think about this almost every day in your life after it happens. It makes that much of an impact on you. You're replaying your mind. And I would tell that people after they went in after me, and they've all said the same thing, that I was right. But they do <laughs> think about it often. This is something you dream about, so, you know, you, you can't help but think about it. So after someone has won Best in Show, the ultimate prize, uh, where do you go from there in a breeding program? Uh, you just try to duplicate it and improve if you can. I'm never satisfied. I was, there's always better. And I think I've produced better since then. And um, did she turn out to be a good brood animal? Did she produce herself? or She didn't outproduce herself, but she produced good rabbits that you could put in the breeding program. Yeah, I think that's an expectation a lot of people have is that uh, an outstanding show rabbit will outproduce itself. At least, you know, something I've noticed, I raised Dutch and a great show Dutch is almost never going to do that just because there's so many things that have to line up on that rabbit. Um, but I think at least the most important part is that that they produce their best traits. Yeah, it's genetics that you want the next generation down the line. You want those genetics. And that's in any, any creature. So this is a hobby that you also share with your son, Ryan. Um, is. What is it like doing this as a family? It, it's fun going together. But he judges now, so I don't go with him to the judging shows. But he's not shown anymore. So that, that aspect has changed a little bit. But it's always been great. I mean, as a father, I mean, how can you get better traits than that? So I'm very proud of him. He's done very well. And um, which breeds has he raised? He's raised essentially mini wrecks. And um, so how does that does that work when you guys have been uh, working in rabbits together and competing? Do you look at each other's rabbits and give each other advice, or do you kind of just stay in your own corners? No, no, we help each other. And, you know, he respects my opinion, and I respect his. So, um, And I think that helps that you can bounce off somebody you, re you respect. Yeah, it's easy I to agree. Get a little bit. Do you tend to see things the same most of the time, or...? I think so. I really do. I mean, sometimes we go a bit higher than another rabbit than sometimes you, the other person does. But you, know, you see certain traits that are, that are outstanding and you just kind of, you know, you like to see those come together. So what advice would you give someone who who has the same dream that you do, um, who wants to win Best in Show? Do you think there are any secrets to it or what would you tell that person? Well, I think it's it's... It's a plan. It's not a plan that's going to happen overnight. Most of the people who won Best in Shows, at least adults, have been in this hobby for a long, long time. And I think they all do the same thing. I think they got around people who knew how to win. I think that's who they they learn from. Um, I think we all start at one time or another. And uh, it's the people who surround you, and it's it's learn how to find quality stock, and it's have a, a designated plan, and you got to stick with it. Uh, you just can't change breed to breed and think you're going to win the ultimate. Um, you can get good stock, but you've got to produce your own rabbits. So. so what do you think are um, some of the keys to selecting the traits that it takes to win? Are there some things that are um, a little more difficult to produce in rabbits? Are there some things that tend to come easily? Well, I think the main thing any breed needs is a good loin. As long as you've got a good, powerful loin, and that's outside maybe a Himalayan, but if you don't have that deep powerful muscle loin uh, and work off your hind quarter in your loin for in your rib cage for that then you're just you're wasting your time the That's loin's good. everything it's the power and that applies to even rabbits that are not typically meat rabbits correct correct i really do i think muscle's muscle i think that's what's the things that impress judges you know outside of wool and fur and stuff like that you know um 
depth of body is a new trend right now in the last 20 years, 25 years. Uh, when I started, depth of body was not even considered. It was more about taper uh, between shoulder and the hind quarter of the width of it. Uh, if you look back at some of the old cages, pay, I mean, pictures, the rabbits were flies of pancake, and they were winning. They were the best in show rabbits. Uh, those rabbits in today's showroom would not do, they'd be first off the table. So we really improved that. And I started to see that mm-hmm. coming over about mm-hmm. the mid-80s where depth of body came important. And I'm starting to see it through almost all breeds now. You have some depth of body. Yeah, it seems like that's a necessary trait in every breed to win. And you're absolutely right. I've looked back through some old pictures, and those rabbits would not be competitive in the least now. But in their day, they were the best. So that's where selective breeding in anything improves over time. And I think that's a good part about being a showing. When you show them, you did, that's how you learn. If you're not winning, then you got to go to the drawing board and see how what it's going to take to win or get out. So once you've produced those good traits, um, what do you think is the best way to condition an animal for a big show? I think it's genetics. It's the biggest thing. I think people overfeed their rabbits with conditioners and get them fat. And once you get them fat, you can't go back and fix it. They stay fat and they stay soft. So genetics is all of it. And I just think it's just good health, good taking care of them and make sure they've got water and they're in good condition as far as environment is a big part of it. Uh, there's all kinds of different climatelles across the country from humid to heat to cool to cold. And everybody seems to win. So you've got to make it work for yourself. you got to make it work in your environment. Selective breeding again. There you go. Yeah, I know um, often we hear beginners talking about, you know, what kind of conditioner should I use? Should I use a different kind of feed? And uh, it sounds like you're saying that consistency and then just selective breeding is the way to go. Yeah, I think I feed is pellets and, and oats. I don't feed hay or nothing. No conditioners. I call how rabbits condition, how long they stay conditioned. It's the next generation. That's why I look at it. That's good advice. So um, what are some more advancements or developments that you've noticed in this hobby since you started that you think are fun or exciting? That's a good question. Um, you know, just there's a lot more shows than there used to be. Um, when I first started out, there was no Karen Cake shows, if you can believe that or not. They were coop shows. And you went in Friday night, there might be 200 rabbits in cages. And that's how you learn to do coop judging. Because I was a young kid and people would let me touch their rabbits. So I go around coops and look at rabbits and look at crates and stuff then. So then once you get them on the tables and stuff, you can physically touch them and see how diverse they are. So parent case shows started happening about the mid-60s. And now then, you know, to this day now, we're doing three or four shows at a, a weekend. And, uh, and sweep take points have caused some of that. But it's necessary because it takes that much money to uh, make these shows happen. But the facilities are not cheap anymore, so. Years ago, they were pretty well donated. We didn't have any cost for our building costs. So the environment's changed in the last 50, 60 years. That's really interesting. You know, we've talked to several guests who have been in this hobby for quite some time. And that tends to be the biggest change that everyone talks about is going from a single show to multiple shows in a day. Um, and you've explained some of the reasons why that's necessary and why clubs need to do that, um, besides just the fact that it seems to be what exhibitors want now. Um, can you talk about how single shows are a little bit different and how the, the day was at a single show? Well, single shows, that's where you got to learn to be mentored. That's because groups of people, good breeders, would sit around and talk. And, you know, they didn't talk about stuff outside of the rabbit world. They talked about the rabbit world and, and breeding and, and calling and stuff. That's how you learn. So uh, as a small child, I just kind of snuck in the crowd and just kind of listened. And um, there was called table judging. 
people would bring their best rabbits out and start putting them on the table in between judging and uh, and comparing and showing where they were at as far as their other rabbits were doing at that time. So that's another good point. Now it's so busy that you can't even communicate because there's so many shows. People raise multi-breeds, and all you do is listen for when the next table judge is being done. So uh, there's not sometimes as much harmonity going around uh, because of that. Um, relationships aren't what they used to be because you don't, um, you're not busy like you used to. Uh, I've probably been to more rabbitries in my life than I've been to showrooms because that's where you learn inside rabbitries. And sometimes it's not what you see or hear when you visit. It's not what to do. So that's what you take home with you. But I've truly probably been more different people rapture across the country than I have in show. Interesting. Do you think that's been more helpful than being at shows in terms of learning about those breeds? A lot of people, especially people who are successful, aren't really that easy to talk to sometimes at a show. I, mean, I don't know if it's nerves or, it's a, or a, it's just the way they think they should be at the shows, but they're totally different at home. More relaxed, more open to, to suggest and talk and help and answer questions. So that's the way it is for me. A lot of people come see me and that's what they do. They want to learn. So one-on-one is much better. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, Alan and I both started showing in the mid nineties. And sometimes we've heard some stories about things like judges used to smoke at the judging table or, um, shenanigans outside the showroom that maybe wouldn't fly now is that true did they used to smoke at the show tables oh yeah they'd have ashes on top of your rabbits <laughs> they were hanging their mouth and you know they'd be going outside at lunchtime or take a break and and have a have a drink or whatever so yeah there you go smell no booze on everybody's breath <laughs> back, back then it was almost 90 percent men uh when i grew up there's only two female judges when i got in the rba and they didn't get very many assignments um, kids were outside playing. They were the ones getting in trouble, throwing rocks through windows. Uh, people like Scott Williams and I, we were kind of, the, and Chris Hayhow, we were kind of the unusual ones. We stayed inside and learned. So, and we're still in it. Yeah. Yeah. All of you have been very successful in this hobby and also contributed a lot to it and a lot to the mentorship of others. Well, it means a lot to us. And we see why young people like it. I mean, if you had a good experience as a kid, it's not just the kids, too. Sometimes we're seeing today that it's parents. Kids have moved on, and the parents kind of made some friends and like what's going on in the rabbit world. They stick with it and uh, get involved, and, and that's kind of our new where we're getting our new uh, people at right now is kids' his parents. Yeah, yeah. Um, 4-H, FFA, all that is is a great pipeline for families. Like you said, even if the kids don't stay, a lot of times the parents do. I know, you know, back from when I was a kid, there's just as many, if not more, parents that stuck with it than kids my age. Yeah, it's true. Back then, when my age, they were 4-H, and that's where you kind of got kids started in the, the regular ARBA stuff. That's we're exposed to good 4-H leaders and stuff like that. They take the state fairgrounds and help you get your rabbits injured and that's where you took off. So when you grew up, was were 4-H and ARBA very integrated or were they kind of two separate show worlds? They were two separate things back then. But you had people, you didn't have a lot of shows, so a lot of the good breeders would go to the 4-H shows in their local towns and show. They'd bring a few rabbits and that's how you got to know these people. They'd take you under their wings and, and teach you if you were willing to, to learn something. 
back then, I had people take me to rap shows as a kid everywhere. I, I was just kind of a, a fifth wheel in the middle <laughs> by people smoked and drank cigars and stuff. So, yeah, it's changed. The RV's changed as far as the landscape and what it was today. Totally. It's, it's changed 180 degrees. Interesting. It sounds like it. But there was a lot of cases back then. Yeah. Times change. And um, so we talked about um, best in shows at convention. Were best in shows at local shows always chosen, or was there kind of a hiatus there too? That's a little hiatus too. Everybody's got a different, uh, like you see today, um, where people call it reserve and grand champion. And I think that comes from the fair mentality. So, and we still see some of that some today. Um, where people have best in show and reserve best in show. So everybody has a different perspective of that, I think. Yeah, we see uh, some shows do. There's still a few around that do four class and six class, not very many. Yeah, they do. Um, yeah. yeah, most do, you know, best in show, reserve in show, maybe second or even third or honorable yeah. mention. Or... Honorable mention, yes, you agree. Yeah. yeah. We didn't have that back then. So it was, when I first started, in the 60s and early 70s, it was just pretty well, you won your breeding, you were done. Interesting. And was there a reason for that, or was that just the way it was? I don't think anybody thought of it, you, know, you and I. Very uh, I interesting. With, I don't know who came with the idea back then, early 70s. 71 was the first year, as I said, so. Yeah, I actually, um, I grew up very close to Ellsworth Tibbetts. He lived in the next county over and would come to our county fair. And he had a um, supply store outside of Wichita. And I remember seeing his award there. It was nothing, of course, like the awards that they give now. Um, But I always thought that was cool to look at. And his family donated that trophy that he won personally. Yeah. So I think it's in the library now, the ERB library. Wow. He was a very good breeder. Yes, he was. He was. His Silver Martins and Florida Whites um, were pretty dominant in the area when I started out as a kid. There's been a lot of good ones. That there have. Well, thank you, Doug, for this. Um, It's been really interesting. It's always interesting to hear the perspective of people who have won this award, but I would say that everyone I've talked to, there's there's a really drive and a passion and a commitment, and this is not a, a some days thing. This is an everyday thing that people work toward. No, I agree. I mean, it's, you get up every morning, and that's what you desire to do, and it, it's your motivation to do it. So uh, it's not everything easy thing to do, but uh, if you want to be successful, then you just got to bear down and do it. So you got to find pleasure in doing it or you won't last very long at all. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know it's inspirational to me. That's uh, a word I'm still chasing and probably will be for a long time. It's a good thing, though. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is our pleasure. Um, Alan's got some education for us for the fourth segment of our podcast. Great uh, chat with with Doug, by the way. You know, Doug's one of those guys that when you see a convention, you just want to give him a big hug. He's one of the, the warmest, most welcoming. And for our generation, Brian, I think you and I have talked about this, you know, privately that he's just open to the next generation and he sees the value in that next generation. And he's been around a long time. I'm not going to call him out on his age, but um, <laughs> he certainly is. Um, he's just, he, 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 
you know, time to him is not something that's that defines a person. He is uh, he he's one that values people if they are participating, if they are doing the right thing, if they're ethical and treating their animals well, and then going after that final goal. He's he's it doesn't matter how old you are. Uh, Doug is one to give you a big hug and, and appreciate that. So great interview and such a great candidate, you know, take at uh, the perspective of someone who took that pinnacle prize at the ARBA convention. So I can't think of a better education topic than to talk about the Florida white breed since uh, we just heard about from Doug winning best in show with one. Um, and I want to give a nod to a special book that the ARBA actually sells. It's called Domestic Rabbits and Their Histories, Breeds of the World by Bob Whitman. And Bob Whitman does an amazing job in this book talking about not only ARBA breeds, but breeds around the world and how they came about. The, the amount of work that he put into publishing this book and and getting those those facts from from breeders, not only uh, you know on, on our continent but across the world, it's it's fascinating. So um, all of these facts, by the way, come from that book. So the Florida White was actually recognized in 1967 at the Syracuse Convention. And the man that was responsible for that uh, successful presentation and acceptance of the breed was Orville Milliken. And it's interesting to hear how he made the Florida White. He actually used uh, three things. And maybe, Brian, you can uh, maybe touch on this. First of all, he used an albino Dutch. What the heck is an albino Dutch? Oh, at the time, I would guess it was probably Dutch. It was crossbred with a dwarf. Probably true, huh? Have you ever seen one? Do they pop um, out in Dutch now? There have been some. Um, I know a breeder up in Kansas City got one a few years ago. I suspect now that that's probably a long buried recessive gene from using Florida white to get body type as opposed to using a dwarf to get a head. Interesting how you think maybe today those uh, albino Dutch may actually go back to Florida white when in fact back in the 60s when the Florida white was developed, it was uh, the Dutch on, on the reverse that maybe help the breed develop. So anyway, so one of the components was an albino Dutch. Um, Orville Milliken also used a ruby-eyed white Polish and a small type New Zealand white to bring down some size. And his goal, interestingly enough, in the creation of the Florida white was to create a small albino lab rabbit. And he thought this was like, this is going to be cool. Like these labs are going to appreciate a white rabbit that's consistent in fur, color. You know, it's, it's like white paper basically, right? So he thought hey, labs are going to really get onto this thing. Well, in fact, labs did not get onto it. And they were reluctant because it was a different breed. They were used to dealing with New Zealand white type rabbits. So the Florida white did not take off as a lab rabbit, but instead it did take off as a show rabbit in the ARBA. And the breed was recognized, like I said, in 1967, but it took another huge turn in 1970 when, of course, the legendary Fibber McGee from Oklahoma uh, served as a pioneer in the breed. He, he gets into Florida Whites and he does pretty much what the original developer did. That's Orville. He crossed Polish and with New Zealand Whites. So bringing down the size in Polish, but bringing in that meat type from the Florida White or from the New Zealand, sorry. And as Fibber would do it, very quickly, he changed the type and made them to what he thought was that little meat rabbit. But he, I don't know, for some reason, maybe was discouraged or just wanted to work on other things. He gave or sold his entire lot of Florida Whites uh, around that same time to a Dale Addison of Oklahoma. Uh, Dale was visiting his rabbitry, was visiting Fibber's rabbitry. And he's like, hey, these are really interesting. You know, I'm, I'd like to get involved in them. So Fibber's like, here, take the whole lot. So Dale Addison takes the breed. And believe it or not, 
he took the breed all the way to the breed's very first best in show at an ARBA convention. And that was in 1977, won, of course, by Dale Addison. And that convention was in Houston, Texas. Well, it wasn't more than or less than a year later when Fibber's like, you know what? I'm thinking about getting back into these things. And in 1978, Fibber McGee picked up his old Florida White project and raised them all the way through his very last best in show. That's right, because he won not just one, not two, not three, but actually four ARBA best in shows at the convention. And that was in 1999 when he took the Florida White to best in show status. And of course, the next Florida White to win best in show was in 2013 by our special guest tonight, Doug Hara. And um, that may have been Fibber's last best in show at the convention, but his mark was certainly long lived and, and still is felt today by each and every one of us, especially those that were touched or had mentors that were mentored by him. So pretty cool history. Uh, and, and their standard, by the way, is really interesting. It's only one page in the entire standard of perfection. So it's rather short, but I think it's one of the most well-written ones from a, a judge standpoint, when you're trying to figure out exactly what to look for. I think that the body standard is, is poignantly, poignantly written. Um, it doesn't take a whole lot of text to figure out exactly what you're looking for. They have 55 points on body alone. 20 points on fur, 10 points on condition, and, well, they're white. As Doug talked about earlier, hey, if you want to invest in show convention, you better you, you better raise something that doesn't have a lot of color to, to bog you down, and, and white is as, as white can be, right? It's pretty easy. So they only have five points on color. But what I love about the Florida White Standard is that in 55 points on body, it's broken down into three different sections. First of all, hindquarters, which are supposed to be equal in depth uh, and, and width, which is, I think, a template across our standard day. Doug talked about the influence of depth of body and how important it is across our standard today and how for the last 20 or 25 years, it's been a real focal point, that focal point, that, that classic top line where they peek over the center of the hips, they taper on their sides, and then depth equals width throughout. Uh, the next section, which is talked about in the Florida White body standard is loin, which also Doug talked about. He said, you know, you can't have a good Florida White, you can't have a really good rabbit, he says, without a loin. So loin is described in the Florida White body standard um, and, and very nicely. And then lastly, rib sections, that spread of the ribs. And, you know, as Doug talked about in the early days when rabbits were not judged on top line, they were judged on basically the taper of their body from the front to the back, from shoulder to midsection, hindquarter. So the rib spread would have a lot to deal with. Um, in those days and in these days, the taper, the appropriate taper of a slightly narrower shoulder, a slightly narrower midsection relative to the hindquarter, and then finally the widest part of the body being in the hips or the hindquarters. So um, a very interesting standard, not very long, but one that's well-written and well-understood and clearly something that breeders are capable of, of taking uh, to its highest point, which is best in show at the convention. So pretty cool stuff. It was really fun to learn about the Florida White tonight, why they came about as an early lab rabbit, how that failed, but ultimately how they came to be one of the most successful breeds in our standard and in our Airbnb history. Yeah, they're very competitive. Um, it's an interesting breed, far from being a, a boring little white rabbit. No, totally. They're, that's just it. Like, <laughs> I heard people say, like, oh, Florida whites are so boring. They're just white. Yeah, but have you ever like tried to raise them? I, I've never raised Florida whites, but there is so much more detail that goes into assessing their their bodies, conditioning them for a show getting them ready. You know, Doug talked about going into a convention at 85 points, he felt like with that doe that won best in show. And then in a matter of days, seeing that rabbit bloom to the point where she was capable of winning the biggest show in town. Um, so they're, they're certainly not a boring breed by any measure. 
not at all. Um, I do have to add one last little, um, you talked about how how we all consider, you know, Doug to be one of our mentors and somebody who's very encouraging to us. He was actually the first person I approached when I started getting an idea about maybe doing a rabbit podcast because I knew he would tell me the truth. And I mm -hmm. knew that that if he thought it was a good idea, um, he would be supportive. So thank you again, Doug. Yeah, thank you, Doug, for being with us tonight. Uh, again, if you, everyone, when we get back to normal, right, when we get back to going to shows and certainly going to the convention, Doug is someone that you want to bump into in the showroom when you're walking down a hall or walking down an aisle and you're, you're doing your thing and you see Doug there, you just, you just have to stop and give this guy a hug and, and listen to him. He's, he's seen it all and he's one of the most um, positive forces we have in our industry today. And we're so lucky to have him. That we are. Well, thank you all for joining us tonight. We hope you learned something. We hope you're inspired. And we hope you come back to hear stories from our other Best in Show winners. Everyone has a little different take on it, but there's a lot to learn. They're, they're wonderful stories. All you have to do is ask. We have so much more coming, guys. Thanks for tuning in tonight and listening to our podcast, Episode 7, featuring Doug Hera, 2013 ARBA Convention Best in Show winner. We will see you guys next time. And remember, talk rabbits, talk cavies. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.